Tyler Smiley. And I'm John Morrison. And this is the Rooted and Grounded Podcast. Rooted and Grounded creates theological content to grow the church and our knowledge of God in order that we would grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. I'm glad I remembered to read it. That was good. There was some hesitation in your voice about what podcast this was. I couldn't remember if I was supposed to read the pink card for this one or if it was for the other the other thing that we do. The other thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shameless promotion of ourselves in both. So uh, read the card. Two podcasts, one stream, mm. but two different like series going on. It's true. I get very confused when I try to upload it all. That's why is that why you've just stopped uploading them? Uh that's why there may be some hesitations <laughs> from time to time. I can't remember exactly what goes where. Hmm. But it, it works. all works out in the end. As far as I know, they they keep showing up on my phone. So uh you must be doing something right. That's all that matters. Well, this one is our reading through the Old Testament, Eden to Exile, a one year journey through the Old Testament and its connection with Jesus in the New Testament. And as a church, we're reading through the Old Testament. We won't get to all of it, but we're reading through it one chapter a day, five days a week for the entirety of the year. And then we're always trying to see how this connects with the New Testament. And uh, so we find ourselves in this discussion on... We're going to cover a couple different weeks of reading. This one's going to kind of catch most of two weeks in one conversation. Did that make any sense at all? I mean, we just talked about it like three minutes ago, and I'm actually already confused. What weeks are we talking about? What chapters? You know, what what we're going to do is we're going to talk about chapters 14 through 19, which is like a little bit from one week. Week 16. And then a little bit Week 17. From week 17. Yeah, that's right. I just looked that up so I could say it. Okay, thank you. Looked like I knew what I was talking about. And in chapter 14 of Exodus, we find the Israelites coming out of Egypt. I mean, Mm -hmm. they've come out now. Yes. But there's still this one really important occurrence that happens, an event that takes place, which I don't know how to actually... it, It seems like it should be connected in some ways, with the plagues that took place. Mm. I mean, this doesn't seem to, like, it's a, its own event, but also it doesn't seem like this disconnected thing. I mean, it's a line from the plagues that have come through to get the people out, and then, but the Egyptians, you know, they're going to chase them down. So there's kind of this one more thing that mm. takes place to really get them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really makes a difference to talk about it as sort of part of the overall events of the plagues or is just this one isolated thing that takes place but there there are a lot there just seem to be a lot of themes that are crossing over yeah certainly not isolated right. i mean it is part of their deliverance from egypt but what themes uh, what themes are you thinking about when you say there are a lot of themes connected with the red sea and then the plagues so again pharaoh's heart Mm-hmm. is shown as hardened. Okay. And that makes him change his mind. Yes. The difference like with, he's done like he's, in every plague. That's right. The difference here is just that they're not in Egypt anymore. So he has to travel outside to mm-hmm. go. I mean, they're kind of in the 
not Egypt proper is what I'm yes. thinking, like the yes. city city limits <clears throat> proper there. So there's there's that. Uh, there's God again showing His power through a miraculous sign to get His people out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and which just has, and it's kind of the fulfillment of the 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 last plague, the Passover. It's really the sort of the final movement of that the the answer maybe to the the plagues as they've been building mm. up. So I just think yeah, I don't want to it's its own obviously its own event it takes place, but I don't want it to be so disconnected from everything that's been kind of leading up to this because now it's all finalized, it's all brought together. They're out of Egypt. They're they're free. The Egyptians can't touch them anymore. It's kind of what it what it seems like. And there is this bridge forward too, right? There's connection with the past, but also the bridge forward. I think about uh, so I'm looking at 14:11, when the Israelites say to Moses, "Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness?" It's going to be a pretty common common theme for yes. the wilderness wanderings yeah. is the grumbling, and so yeah. there's the deliverance, and yet preparing for these 40 years of wandering because of their hard hearts, because their own hard hearts and their disobedience, and their grumbling. Uh, so we, we look back with the Red Sea crossing, but also this is forward-looking event, I think, as well. And who says there's no sarcasm in the Bible? I mean, there's a, there's a bit for you. Isn't that kind of snippy? How is it? Uh, I'll, well, let's, we don't need to have the discussion about okay. the sarcasm of Jesus. Oh, right. He's a little biting at points. Yeah. Some people don't like the word sarcasm for that, though. Oh, right. Yeah. That'd be a different... They usually tell that to me. Of they usually say that to me when after I've been sarcastic and they don't like it. Do you feel your sarcasm is sanctified then? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I mean, you, your words, not mine. <laughs> but it's a little bit snippy of them. I mean, uh, it's yeah. I it's probably, like, to be fair, I probably have more in common with the Israelites <laughs> than with Jesus. But anyways, I mean, it's sadly humorous, like the the way that the 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 uh, quote is phrased. You've brought us out here because there are no graves in Egypt. Thanks a lot, Moses. Oh, and the grumbling later about we'll get there, but about the food. Yeah, like don't you remember how not how easy we had it back in Egypt when we were slaves and had to build bricks without straw? Moses did nothing but cause us trouble. They're terrified for their lives. I think yes. that's the point at the Red Sea. At the yep. Red Sea. I mean, there and the way that the journey has come. They came out of Egypt, moving east, and instead of going kind of like northeast along the coastline of the Mediterranean, they they went sort of south first, and then came back up north, and maybe even like slightly west, almost back close to Egypt, which just really drew Pharaoh. I mean, it was mm. like this ploy to get him to come to them, and and he certainly does, but. So they're going to cross over and then go back kind of further southeast again. But that, I don't remember if we said it last time, that uh, in Exodus 12, there's 600,000 men, then plus women, plus mm-hmm. children, plus livestock and all their all their stuff. I mean, this is a big, big group of folks that are coming out. That's right. Hey, sorry, I'm stuck on this grumbling passage. All right. Maybe it's because I like to grumble, but I think, I mean, they don't understand the deliverance God has for them. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But that's not what God has called them to do, right? He's not called them out to die in the wilderness. He's called them to deliver them to the promised land. Yeah, but I think that's how we are with God. Like we, 
we don't know the salvation he's offered us. And so we turn back and think, wouldn't it be better if I just did, we're back in slavery to my sin? If I could just live like everybody else? I mean, how quickly we we turn out and grumble like the Israelites. Exodus, uh, to borrow a phrase from a friend, a little bit in my business, in my mailbox, right? Like, you got Pharaoh and his hard heart, his fake repentance. Now we have the Israelites grumbling all the time. Uh, it's a little too close to home mm-hmm. uh, with my own grumbling, own dis- how yeah. quickly I'm dissatisfied with the good things God does. So what's the difference between grumbling and what we would, I think, call lament? Like biblical, a, a crying out to God. Mm. What's the That's difference between that? I think, I mean, I want to say, you know it when you see it. But what is, can you describe the difference between those two things? Well, I think even in lament, there's always a turning back to God and saying, I even if it's an admission, right, this is hard, this is horrible, I don't know why this is happening, but I know you are God. And in the grumbling, you never get there. It's, this is horrible, I can't believe this is happening. Full stop, period. Yeah, with no, there's no faith in a grumble where I think there is, lament is actually a faithful response to the circumstance because it's always, it ultimately takes you back to God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's a a good distinction to make between those two things because mm. because sometimes uh, maybe you can accidentally grumble or or I mean like so you were just saying where what is the motivation from what I'm facing mm-hmm. that's difficult scary frightening hard to to go through uh, maybe a lot of it comes down to your expectations mm-hmm. what do we what what had we expected God to do. And uh, so checking our own heart, our own motivation for uh, against what what happened, what occurred, you know. But an interesting distinction to make between those two things. Yeah. And I think the Psalms are so helpful here because they do lament. The psalmist does lament. And yet they're always taking it back to God and what God has done and who God is. So, I mean, because I think so much of our grumbling is because of our self-centered perspective and I think everything should revolve around me, right? I mean, you think about the Israelites. It would be better. I'd rather not die. And I'd rather be a slave. This is what's better for me. That's what's better for the people of God, not what's better for God's glory, but what is better, what I think is best for me in my limited perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think what the Psalms do is say, no, consider your situation, consider your life, in all its trials and all its difficulties from God's perspective. So they give us a God's eye view on our lives. When they are saying these things and Moses kind of uh, speaking with God, with the people, kind of the go-between, and he says, it's interesting to me because he says in 13, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The the Egyptians uh, whom you see today you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent which some will also say you have only to be still mm-hmm. or to stand. Mm-hmm. And then he say, you know, uh, so well, what do we do? Well, move forward, you know. So there's sort of this constant tension between trusting God, believing he'll fight, and yet walking in that obedience, walking out the faith that they have. 
Yeah, and I, I think you see that throughout that there, uh, to use Paul's phrase from Romans 1, there is an obedience of faith that even even in the Passover, they trusted God and their trust was manifested in the in the trust in his provision, the spreading of the blood over their doorpost. Um, on one hand, right, they did nothing to to win their deliverance, to win their redemption. And yet they exercised their faith. They trusted in God, but it was purely God's act. And I think that's the same thing here, uh, that right, they, they have to trust God, and that trust works out and in the obedience of faith. All right. The Red Sea. Mm. It says there's a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. That seems pretty amazing. Yes. I've never seen anything like that before. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. And they walk right through it. And all, even, you know, what uh, what uh, had someone had pointed out when we were having this conversation, that, I mean, it's even so dry that they can actually walk on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is itself amazing i mean you, you know if you've ever been anywhere near water bogged areas before right doesn't it's not too firm no, no but uh apparently they can walk and even there's parts where the chariots can actually get on it the egyptian chariots can ride on it up to a point until the, the all water of the israelites yeah are out and then it begins to clog up the uh the wheels there but that that has uh, the event itself has seemed to cause some issues about its reliability, whether it actually happened. Mm. Uh, but we just want to say that there's never in any indication within the Old Testament, traditionally, or within the New Testament authors, that this event to them was always a true historical event that mm-hmm. actually occurred, which is just. I mean, phenomenal to think about walking through this path with a wall of water on your right and left. I don't know what to say about it. That's what it is. Right. And I think we should probably point out that we like to think that we are advanced and scientific people who are so skeptical. And they're they're no less skeptical. They understand the way the world works. This is just as miraculous of an event for first century writers of the New Testament for the ancient Israelites who passed uh, these scriptures down is just as miraculous of an event yeah. to them. That's right. This is to our point of having not seen this done. We cross Lake Lanier by a bridge, yep. not by walls of water being pushed to the side. Right. This yep. is not the way the world works, but it's always been accepted as a miracle of God. Yeah. I love that right after you have, so right after in 14, Exodus mm-hmm. 14, the description of the the narrative description of what happened in fifteen, it's the you have this song of praise to God for what He did from Moses, which is reflecting the view of all the people. That's how I understand, not just sort of Moses in isolation, but no Moses on behalf of the people praising God mm-hmm. for what He's done. Mm-hmm. But the events are sort of reiterated poetically, which is just great. I mean, so you see, this is how they're interpreting and understanding what happened in the song that they that they sing. So they're and that they're singing and praising God like explicitly for how He kind of worked piece by piece. Like in fifteen, chapter fifteen, four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Like that, 
they're explicitly looking to how even the event itself unfolded and thanking God for each, not just thank you for delivering it. I mean, there are, there's obviously that, but that their their wheels were clogged, and this is mm. this is the work of God, like explicitly seeing Him in every detail, working this out for for all of their salvation to get them across and out of Egypt. How do you how do you make sense of God being praised for His judgment? Right, this is a fairly violent end. Like this is uh, charioteers and horses drowning to death, and God is being praised for that. How do you how do you make sense of that? I mean, I think my first reaction was like, "Huh, we're praising God for that, huh?" Yeah, and in verse. Three, I mean, it's from the beginning. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his mm-hmm. name, um, which they're, you know, calling God by his name that he has revealed, be, revealed to him. And you want to say first, they're celebrating God's deliverance of his people. And God has made it very clear for uh, a while now among all the Egyptians and the mm-hmm. Israelites that these are my people. And, I, and they are coming out of slavery in Egypt. That's right. And I'm taking them to a land that I've promised them. And so you, you just want to say that uh, God, as their king, protects his people. And this is what he said he's going to do, and that's what he is, uh, intends to do with his people. And when uh, human beings try to stop or thwart the plan of God, They'll find themselves unable to do so. Uh, so I, I think it's right to praise your God as a king who protects his people, mm. and uh, that's certainly what God did in this in this case. So not praising him for sort of brutally, uh, you know, some brutal event on mm-hmm. another group of people, but praising him that he has delivered his people like he said he would do. Is praising God for his judgment only an Old Testament idea? I mean, is this sort of this Old Testament, New Testament distinction? Like, is God, do we, this doesn't sound very uh, like my felt board picture of Jesus, right? So is this only an Old Testament idea, or do you think, is this in the New Testament too? I think it's most clearly in the New Testament at Christ mm-hmm. on the cross. Mm-hmm. This is where I think you see everything going. I mean, it's building to that which is what the cross is shown to be that there was a, a penalty that was that Christ paid and because of that God ultimately and truly finally saved his people you know that uh, it is truly finished is done and for all those who have faith in Christ uh, you are now made right in God's sight so it's a uh, it's certainly a a new testament uh, theme but th- that's the that's the type of God that you that you need and want, ultimately. Mm-hmm. A God that is true, who will deal rightly with good and evil, who's not confused about what is good and what is evil, but knows what's right and will protect his people uh, and will, will do the right thing, always. And that you see uh, how necessary it is to understand this God in light of the New Testament. Like that, you if if you didn't have both of these testaments working together, the full story of what God has done, you would you'd be deficient in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. You wouldn't understand how mm-hmm. does all this go together. But that this God 
comes down in Jesus Christ. So I think it's it's shown all the way through that God ought to be pra- we ought to praise God for His uh, justice mm-hmm. for His righteousness because He always does what's right. And isn't that what we long for? Is for justice, whatever we think that might be. I mean, and in our own sinfulness, it gets perverted, and we think this is justice or that is justice. But when some great evil has been done. That's what, what our hearts cry out for, is for justice to be done. Now, the <laughs> the cross tells us that for justice to be done, we all should be punished. Mm-hmm. And yet, God in his mercy will bear the wrath of his people for their deliverance. So I think there's some sense in which judgment and deliverance always go hand in hand in Scripture. Right. right. Uh, but the cross is... God judging the Son mm-hmm. for the deliverance of his people. That's right. Which is this great reversal mm. <laughs> that God would take the punishment on himself. There's also in Exodus 15 this battle between whose God is the true God. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just this sort of humans vying for their own earthly power, but it's it's one people and another people, Egyptians and Israelites, saying... Our God is the true God, or mm-hmm. the Egyptians, our God, or God's small, little, little G, parentheses, S, because there could be multiple gods that they, you know, that they would have. But whose God is the true God? And you actually see that uh, in 1511. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. I mean, so you see that he is showing himself to be the one true God. Mm. Don't put your hope in other gods. Don't put your hope in other things. Put your hope in the one true God who has shown himself over and over again to be the true God. Well, I think with that, there are these interesting connections between Exodus. Well, I mean, Exodus is the model of redemption for all of Scripture, clearly the work of Christ, but John in Revelation also draws on Exodus to explain what's going on in his day. And I think that's fascinating, this idea of proving, of showing that the Lord is God, that he will triumph over his enemies, and just that in Revelation, God is praised for his judgment, for his his judgments are true and just, and he has avenged the blood of his servants. Mm-hmm. That he is God even over things that maybe seem a little more like gods in our day. Or we, you know, the Egyptians' gods don't really resonate with us. Yeah. But when John talks about the powers of his day, he looks at the economic powers, the political powers, and he uses this great metaphorical language to describe them. But in the end, it is God who triumphs. And so I think we look at our world and see political injustice, economic injustice. We see people brutally murdered undeservingly. And we cry out for justice. And yet the great hope is that God is stronger than all these so-called powers and gods. That he's stronger than any economic system, any political system, any political ruler, any army. And he, his judgments are just and true. And he will show himself to be God even over that. So I just this Exodus story continues to be the story of God's people throughout Scripture. And I think continue even to this day through our lives. Yep. And uh, at the end, after 15, you get them now finally in the wilderness, and they're going to begin uh, their journey 
that will take them south to the base of the Sinai Peninsula, back up north and all the way around the other end of the mm-hmm. Sea of Galilee, and they'll come in sort of the back back way there, uh, which is just interesting. And uh, uh, it's God's intent that they. I mean, that's the trajectory He has them going on for purposes that will will be revealed maybe later, and maybe we'll talk about them later. But in 16 and 17, you have the these other two pretty interesting events that happen. So in 16, there's this bread that, that comes down, manna from heaven, like bread apparently just rains down to the earth that feeds and nourishes a million people. Yeah, like some sort of grain, flake, flowery type thing Something. that's made in the bread, right? I don't understand. I don't know what, what it is. is it? What and is they it? seem to not know what it is, so they call it. What is it? They call it. What is it? And uh, and and it feeds them. It nourishes them. It's the materials that they can use to nourish their bodies. Mm. You you uh, I mean your your uh, a lot of your work in school was on the importance of the care for the body and God's thoughts on the importance of care for mm-hmm, the body mm-hmm. that, and you see that really even played out here. I mean, he's saving them out of slavery in Egypt, which is, you know, this sort of sal- salvation event, but mm. he's caring for them physically along the way right. also. Yeah. And that for us, that's truest. We see that most clearly in the cross of Christ, that Christ came in body and soul. He suffered in body and soul to redeem us in body and soul. Um, so it's not just a spiritual reality. But when Jesus declares in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new, all things means all things. All things. As best I can interpret it. And so including heaven and earth. And so that's, yeah, God's care for his people, even in that, that he would provide bread. And it's pretty clear, not just barely helping them survive, but he provides the bread, he provides the quail. They get, uh, for meat, provides the water to drink, but um, he provides for them. And of course, the New Testament takes this and says God's provision for our needs is Christ himself. That uh, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the word of God is Christ himself, the bread from heaven. So there's all these interconnections here with with the story of Jesus. Yeah, God provides spiritually and physically for his people. So the New Testament is explicitly connecting the bread and the water that comes from a rock in chapter 17 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to the the person and work of <clears throat> Jesus Christ. I mean, it's explicitly connecting these things to show us who Jesus is. And then this creates the foundation for how we can read the Old Testament. That's is that, right. Is that right? Is that how you understand? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we... We learn to read the Old Testament by reading it with the New Testament authors. They are our guides for interpreting. I mean, I think about any any book you learn how to read with sort of any seriousness, it's usually through someone else walking you through and teaching you how to read this style of book. And the scriptures are their own genre, their own thing entirely, written, divinely inspired, written by God uh, through human authors. And so we need help understanding it. And who better to help us understand it than those who were taught by Jesus how to read it? So we read with the New Testament and say, look, 
Well, Jesus is actually the bread from heaven. He mm-hmm. says it himself. Yeah, that's right. And then you get to the water from the rock. Yeah, First Corinthians. Yeah, so First that's Corinthians ten. I'm just a fascinating connection. Uh, that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, hmm. and that rock was Christ. And you just think, wait, there was a there's a rock that followed them, <laughs> right? And the rock, the, the rock was Jesus. Yeah, I mean, there's a rock. There's mm-hmm. following. That's right. But it just it's really uh, it's fascinating. So how they how this all connects in their mind is mm-hmm. is fantastic. And another reminder of why it's so important to get the Old Testament in us, like these stories in our brains in that way, so that when we read the New Testament, we track along with what they're saying. Well, that's what. A, you see it in the certainly see it in the New Testament authors, but reading the church fathers from the the early centuries, you know the the second through the fifth century, it is amazing the scripture they have in their minds, and the connections they draw from passages to passage from passage to passage. Uh, hey, what's going on in First Corinthians ten there? Oh no, gonna, I'm not going to answer. You're that not going right to answer that? No, because I have another question. Oh okay. You know, uh, if you want an answer, go see. The Exodus Leader's Guide uh, that you can find at lakewoodlife.org slash OT19. It's a really good answer. I'm going to leave it to that. Did you actually read it? Of course. Hmm, Ministerially speaking, it seems. (laughs) Uh, I have another question. Okay. Because we're almost done. Mm. You know I'm really interested in? Jethro's advice. Okay. I'm just, I don't know. That just has always been an interest to me of of how Jethro enters in the story. So Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, who is a priest in Midian. Right. Uh, a priest for not Yahweh God, not not Yahweh, not this God, but other gods, whoever it is, whoever mm-hmm. their God was mm-hmm. in Midian. I don't know. My, my knowledge of the uh, ancient Near East religion in Midian is not clear enough to tell you exactly what God What are they giving you a be. PhD for anyways? Uh, Unbelievable. They hand them out to anybody. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> but uh, that... Jethro comes back on the scene, and now he believes because he hears of who the what mm-hmm. what this God has done for the Israelites for his people. That's he right. believes in this God, rejects the other God or gods of which he was formerly a priest, and now he's giving Moses this advice. That is it fair to say it's a lot of some about at least delegation, but also mm-hmm. orderliness and who judges right and wrong among mm-hmm. the people. So what I mean. Is this just filling in historical gaps for us, or is there something else going on with Jethro telling Moses, this is what it looks like to lead and, and help the people judge right from wrong, order disputes rightly? That's a lot of question. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I think with Jethro, a couple important things. Well, obviously Jethro shows God's continued concern for the nations. Here's a pagan Midianite who comes to faith in Yahweh. Uh, so this blessing to Abraham that was promised to bless all the nations is coming true. And he's not a—I think the advice on one hand shows he's not a second-class citizen. Right? He's a full member of the community. They listen to him. Uh, I stole that from some commentary I read, but I forgot uh, at this point who, which one it was. So I'm going to— Insert footnote. Yeah, there's a—somewhere it is written. <laughs> but I think it does show that he is part— he is a full member of the people of God, right? He is joining in them with a meal. He is contributing to the community, offering this advice. Uh, but I do think 
going back to that theme in the Passover of remembering, a lot of what's going on here is the need to pass on God's judgments, God's law, God's teaching to his people. And Moses can't teach millions of people. He has to delegate for that to happen. And there's this responsibility all the way down to the family level, to the extended family, to, to the level of the tens, that people should be instructing and judging, uh, judging the right and wrong in these areas. And so I think it's a call. I mean, we would call it discipleship. Yeah. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. right? And to me, this is a model for what the people of God do, mm-hmm. is there is a structure where those who know teach others who know who teach others who know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just, just for lack of a better term, trickle-down effect That's of right. knowing God's law. Yeah. I like how it's phrased in chapter 18, his response in 17 and 18, what Jethro to Moses, what you're doing is not good. Uh, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Which, in my mind, seems like both a quantity comment, mm. like there's too much mm-hmm. for one person to decide disputes on, but also the weightiness of uh, that there ought to be judgments on what is right and what is wrong. Like the weightiness of right and wrong, good and bad. Mm. Don't just sweep these things under the rug. Let them be dealt with mm-hmm. in, a, in a right and true manner, but also... You know, understand that uh, one person can't do all of it, but it needs to be addressed. I mean, it's a weighty, judging right from wrong is a weighty matter. That's right. And just, it seems that throughout the Bible, there's this theme that, and what, what Jethro says, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. I, the life of faith is not to be done alone. I mean, obviously, they're a community of people, but even leadership, I think more, maybe we say also clear in scripture is that leadership of God's people doesn't happen. It shouldn't happen alone, that there's a need for shared responsibility. And often in the Old Testament, Israel gets into trouble when there is one person trying to lead apart from any help, any advice, or maybe with bad advice. You know, it just depends. But, uh, and then in the, into the New Testament, we see God's plan for the church is for it to have a right. a group of leaders that a that one person does. It is not one person's church. It's not one person to make all the decisions, but the church together makes decisions. There's a group of men entrusted to lead the church and to teach the church and those sort of things. And so that everyone has a gift in the body to play and a part to play. Well, at the end of 18, they're finding themselves at the base of the mountain Mm. in Sinai, and that's when we'll start to get the law from God. And that's going to be the topic of our next podcast on Exodus. So just come on back next time for that one. Great. I'll be back. I'll be back. You'll be here. I will be. Because you're required. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Tyler.